0: to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington DC I'm your host Jackie Loopman and as always we're your guide to connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're talking about elections in Georgia, getting an update on that. We're also talking about the ongoing impact of inflation on Americans and the global efforts in the fight for reparations. And later on in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... There were primary races last night, and normally I wouldn't pay too much attention to them, but two of them were actually pretty interesting. New Hampshire State Senate President Chuck Morse conceded the Republican Senate primary Wednesday morning to Don Baldick, a retired Army brigadier general, and election denier who has embraced former President Donald Trump's approach to politics, which is a letdown for the GOP establishment in the race to take on Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. Now, this race is actually pretty funny to me because Baldick has said he, quote, concurred with Trump's assessment about the 2020 election. That is Trump's lie that President Joe Biden's victory came as a result of widespread fraud. He said, quote, I signed a letter with a 120 generals and admirals saying that Trump won the election. And damn it, I stand by that letter, boldick said in an August primary debate. But if the 2020 election was a fraud, then how do we know that he really won the Republican primary? How can he be sure? Boldick has also called uh, John Sununu, the Republican governor whom national figures had attempted to recruit into the race, he called him a Chinese communist sympathizer. Sununu had repeatedly lambasted Bolduc and penned an op-ed in the New Hampshire Union letter urging voters to back Morse. But that didn't work because Sununu is establishment Republican. Bolduc is Trump Republican. Bolduc has also said he would repeal the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which requires states to directly elect their senators and raise the prospect of abolishing the FBI. Don't believe that for one second. Those people need the FBI to come after us. They're not abolishing a cop shop of any kind. And in another race, the Trump Republicans now have their own identity candidate. Now that 25 year old political newcomer Carolyn Levitt, a former Trump aide who more closely mimicked the brand of politics that defined Trump's orbit of political acolytes, defeated Matt Mowers, who was another Trump administration official, but one who was more cautious on issues like the lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. The difference between the two was easy to see in their responses to these key issues like elections where Mowers said he had confidence in New Hampshire elections, but Levitt said that she believed the 2020 election was undoubtedly stolen from President Trump. But again, I have to ask, if she believes the election was stolen from Trump, how can she know for certain the primary election she won was really won by her? And I don't think these people are thinking at all. Mowers suggested hearings to determine whether President Joe Biden should be impeached. Levitt unequivocally said the president should be impeached. And on the issue of the new coronavirus vaccines, Mowers said he supports the science. Levitt said it was none of your business. (laughs) Mauer's seeming common sense wasn't appealing to Trump publicans who aren't big on common sense or logic or reason. So the Trump publicans now have their own Gen Z candidate in Carolyn Levitt. I'm still feeling doomsday for Democrats in the coming midterms because these primary races have shown that even with lots of establishment Republican money and power backing non-Trump candidates, too often the Trump-aligned candidates win, despite The lack of logic of their arguments, despite the insincerity of their demands to abolish a police agency, they ain't never going to do that. Trump's supporters still want candidates who are like him. And that's what I think is going to replace a bunch of Democrats and probably a few Republicans in the midterms. And I was wrong yesterday when I said that nobody is showing up at the public events marking Queen Elizabeth's passing in protest. Oh, yes, they are. They're just being violently arrested by the cops. A young man who shouted at Prince Andrew saying that he's a sick old man because he is. He's pedophile and some other hard truths. As the formal procession wound its way through Edinburgh, Scotland, was yanked out of the crowd and arrested. Another protester was arrested for holding an anti-Marnicke sign, literally just standing there holding a sign before Charles's accession proclamation, also in Edinburgh. Others have been arrested protesting the monarchy in general during the Queen's funeral events, including a 74-year-old man who was arrested and charged with breaching the peace. A fourth person who identified himself online as Simon Hill was arrested in Oxford, England during the local county's proclamation of the new king on suspicion of behavior that could cause harassment or distress, but he was later released before being booked at the police station. Hill said on social media that he had only vocally objected to Charles becoming king and that police told him he had been arrested under a new policing law that took effect in the U.K. earlier this year that allows law enforcement to put more restrictions on protests. A new policing law that was put in place by Boris Johnson that was not opposed by the Queen or any of the royals and certainly won't be opposed by the now king, Charles. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But I do hope the protests and the truth-telling about the monarchy continues until it is no more. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
2: And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Greg Palast, author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, also an investigative reporter whose work you can find at com. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Uh,
3: always happy to be with you.
2: Absolutely. And uh, Greg, of course, uh, the state of Georgia will uh, be going to the polls in November to decide uh, their next governor, of course, between uh, uh, Brian Kemp and uh, Stacey Abrams. And you recently published a piece talking about how if things shake out a certain way, that Brian Kemp uh, very well uh, may be able to exercise some kind of uh, control or influence of how things play out during that election in November. And I was hoping you could sort of explain uh, just how that is and what's happening within the Georgia electoral system that uh, could make this be the case.
4: Yes, and I, I want to
3: add, it's doubly important because also uh, Senator Warnock, that is, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, used to be the pastor... At the Ebenezer Baptist Church, took Martin Luther King's place. He's running for election as U.S. senator. He won the special election last year, but he has to run again this year. So control of the U.S. Senate's on the line. Now, look, as a reporter, I, you know, Greg Powell, ain't going to tell you how you should vote Abrams or Warnock or Kemp, or he's running. Uh, Warnock's running against Herschel Walker. Uh, the The issue is: Will people be allowed to vote? And uh, we are going to be releasing a film in Atlanta on October 5 called Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. And it is about a new system created by Brian Kemp uh, under a new law he signed last year called SB 202. This law allows any voter, any voter, to challenge any other voter and unlimited number of other voters. And we, uh, the palace investigative team, we went into Georgia. We found 88 of these vigilante, what we call the vigilante voter challengers, 88 of them have challenged over a quarter million voters. Uh, the, and every one of them, everyone is a GOP operative. So for example, a woman named Pam Reardon, who is a, um, a county Republican official uh, in a suburb of Atlanta, she personally, personally challenged thirty-two thousand voters. She handed in a thumb drive of thirty-two thousand voters, most of them African Americans. Uh, we had another guy who is the chairman of the Republican Party in Columbus, Georgia, and he challenged. That's near Fort Benning. Uh, he challenged four thousand voters. Those included. A massive number of African-American soldiers, including Major Gamaliel Turner, who um, is the uh, U.S. military's expert on future warfare. And Turner, so he was, uh, Turner was assigned to Fort Wyneme, California. Uh, You know, if you're in the military, you get assigned. So when he applied for his absentee ballot, they said, you can't get your ballot you've been challenged. And he said, what they said, he said, well, how do I get my ballot? They said, well, just come into our office. Now he's 2,600 miles away in California. He's asking for his absentee ballot because he's in the military. And they took away his ballot. Um, In his case, he's a tough bird. He actually did go back. He's been going back to Georgia. And he's, uh, uh, if you want to see, The guy that challenged him and the Major, by the way, the guy that challenged Major Turner, and and again, these are, you know, again, uh, it's not that I'm partisan, but all 88 voter challengers, all these vigilantes, everyone is a Republican operative. There are no Democrats doing these challenges, none. Um, But the guy that challenged these African-American soldiers he likes to dress up like Doc Holliday. Again, he's the chairman of the Republican Party down there. He he dresses up like Doc Holliday the vigilante with a loaded six gun and likes to tell stories of the, of the uh, old of the old west. Apparently Doc Holliday was a Georgian, including likes to tell the story about how Doc Holliday uh, right after the uh, the civil war there were union soldiers, African American union soldiers and uh, swimming in some watering hole that he likes and he and he uh, shot them probably killed them and he thought that was a cute story <laughs> this is the guy that challenged the major if you want to see Doc Holliday with his six gun and his whole outfit and you want to meet the major go to gregpalace.com there's a uh two-minute clip from the film that we will be releasing. So you go to get gregpouse.com. I recommend that you, if you want to see how American elections are working, watch this, like, it's like 103 seconds, and you'll get the whole story.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, how do you sort of see this? Because this feels like... um kind of a continuation of issues that we've been seeing in states like Georgia and really all around the country. Just this um, th- this attempt to just keep people from voting, which is always uh, sort of wild, considering that the act of voting is so um, valorized uh, here in the United States. But as we see, it's not just anyone who's typically kept from voting. It's generally uh, black people and immigrants, uh, people of color, uh, poor and working people, feels like, you know, so many barriers are, are put up for these groups specifically uh, to have access to the, the ballot. And I'm just wondering, Greg, how do you sort of see that sort of broad trend factoring into what we're seeing in Georgia right now? Well, um, yeah,
3: I mean, you can't get away from the fact that what we politely call vote suppression is basically screwing black people out of their vote. Now, in Georgia, they've kind of widened the attack to um, Young people, and by the way, they're, they've really gone after. And when I say they, Brian Kemp, who's the governor, and before that he was in charge of the voting as Secretary of State, he went viciously after Asian American voters as well. There was a group, and you'll see in our film uh, again, which is coming out October five in in Atlanta, uh, which the release, by the way, sponsored by the NAACP of Georgia and Black Voters Matter Fund, and. It's not a question of partisanship, but race is, is at the center of it because they look at, at the black community, young people, as vulnerable voters uh, who could easily be targeted. And it's an old trope. You know, a hundred years ago in, in 1915, a film was released. It was the, the biggest film ever, the most. You know, impressive film ever made called Birth of a Nation, it was shown at the White House. And in that nation, which in that film, which is basically a Ku Klux Klan propaganda film, you, they show a white actor in blackface sneaking a second ballot into a ballot box. And that convinced Americans from there the the, the Ku Klux Klan's claim that there's massive voter fraud. Now, of course, when Trump and Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, talk about voter fraud, they don't say, "Oh, this is." They they don't say, "Oh, the Klan was right." <laughs> they, you know, uh, they just claim voter fraud. There is the the fraud is on the voters. You know that Brian Kemp has has actually removed a half a million people from the voter rolls. He has arrested arrested dozens of people for so-called voter interference, including he arrested the entire uh, school board of a a town, Quitman, Georgia, which for the first time elected a black school board, including two Ph.D. school teachers. He arrested these people. These are people with doctorates who are on the school board saying that they interfered, that they'd stolen their election. The courts threw it out right away. But these people were terrorized. And it's very easy to level this kind of old Klan charge that black people commit voter fraud, that they're ballot stuffing. In fact, in the film, in, in our film, Vigilante, the George's Vote Suppression Hitman, we take out, we actually go after another film called 2,000 Mules, which was just released by Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, but it's seen by millions of people claiming that the, that the, 2020 election was stolen by black men stuffing ballot boxes particularly in Georgia which as you know, Biden won, and so did Warnock and Ossoff, uh, John Ossoff for the Senate seats so this is an old Klan claim that black people commit voter fraud and that's the excuse for these all these laws to prevent black people from stealing elections you know, and I'm not in favor of stealing elections. There's just never been any evidence. And I always say, and I don't say, oh, well, it doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen in Georgia after after all these years in office. Brian Kemp's been touting this line for nine years in Georgia that there's massive voter fraud. And he's not found a single case. I mean, zero, not one, after all his prosecutions, accusations, and basically a new law, which is a, as uh, Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter says, is is filled with violence. It's really violent when you take away people's vote, and the threat of violence is always there.
2: Yeah, and that's what really sort of gets me like the fact that a lot of this even stems from this old uh, racist assumption, as you're uh, pointing out, Greg, that, you know, we, we have to suppress the black vote because if we don't, they'll steal the election. I mean, it's pretty wild, but I think it shows a lot about the reality of politics inside the United States at this moment. And it's clear that this is a very deep and abiding issue, not just in the state of Florida, excuse me, of Georgia, but across Across the uh, uh, United States, and so from your perspective, uh, Greg, what then should fight back look like? I mean, it, I mean, you mentioned um, groups like Black Voters Matter and stuff like that. That's been doing a great job with these kinds of efforts, and so it seems to me that that very kind of work has to be deepened and expanded. Since, at least in my humble opinion, we don't really seem to see a lot of pushback from this uh, from the halls of power uh, talking about the the Democrats who. To to me, at least seem to, you know, proclaim to be addressing racist voter suppression. But, you know, to me, just haven't seen a lot of a movement from that. So it really feels like there has to be um, a concentrated, organized sort of grassroots effort to really fight this uh, racist voter suppression, because, I mean, it just feels and I think we've seen this also with um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade about how there just clearly seems to be a full frontal assault on On basic democratic rights in this country, and it feels like, as ever, you know, just like with the uh, civil rights movement decades ago, it's really up to the people to uh, uh, really uh, fight around this and continue to struggle against this glaring injustice.
3: Well, yes. If you expect a political party to save your vote, forget it. (laughs) That ain't going to happen. You have to save your vote. We have to save our vote and that means that we have to participate with organizations like Black Voters Matter Fund like uh, Rainbow Push in fact the Reverend Jackson said he'll come down for the opening in in um in Atlanta they're very you know it's it's a very concerning issue we have we have to protect our votes we have to be active in this one thing we have to do and and one thing anyone listening please i always say this because Throughout these states, we're seeing massive purges of the voter rolls. This is something Stacey Abrams warned about, and she cited my work on this. Uh, You have in Florida, in Texas, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. If you're in those states especially, please check your registration 60 days before the election. I mean it. I don't care if you've been voting in the same place for 20 years. They, you are vulnerable, especially if you have a recognizable black, Asian American, or Hispanic name. They target those names to go after people. If your last name is Jackson, you better check your registration sixty days before the election. I recommend it for everyone. Uh, there's, and that's one thing to do. The second thing is go to GregPalace.com. See the film pass it around. I mean, there's no question that we have been able to defeat other vote suppression tactics by exposing them. Because the weird thing is that most Americans, no matter what their bias is, whether they're even the worst racist, well, they all believe, Americans do believe that everyone should have the right to vote. So they've been brainwashed a lot of people uh, who say, but we have to prevent voter fraud. It's a, it's a con. It's something that doesn't exist. But what we have to do is make sure that we expose these tricks. And one of the problems we've had is that a lot of Democrats, even certainly a lot of media, have been praising Brian Kemp of Georgia and his secretary of state, someone who have used the most vicious, racist, vote suppression tactics. I've ever encountered, and they're praising these people because they got in the fight with Donald Trump over overturning the the last election. I can tell you this right now: the state of Georgia, the GOP did try to overturn the election. They did everything they could, but you know, at a certain point, those to take the last twelve thousand votes away from Biden would have required committing in-your-face felony crimes and. These guys are 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 vicious vote suppressors. They 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 take away people's votes, like like uh, these black soldiers. But they're not going to risk jail time for Donald Trump. That doesn't make them heroes. So we have to be very careful that we don't fall for the con that Brian Kemp and his and his crew are somehow uh, terrific people because they, because they got in a fight with Donald Trump. That's our latest, latest problem in the fight in Georgia on vote suppression. But look, the the black community is not fooled. That's why they're sponsoring the release of this film because they, they, there's no con. They understand what these guys are up to and it's about taking away the vote of a community they think is vulnerable. Well, it ain't that vulnerable. And they're going to find out, as they got shocked in 2020 with the election of Biden and then a, a black and a Jewish senator from Georgia, two progressive, not just Democrats, but progressive Democrats, and they want to shout against the changing of, of the demographic tide. So protect your own vote, stay aware, join an active organization. Voting is a Voting is a contact sport. It requires, it's a lot of work and a lot you know, that we have to put into this. And go to gregpalace.com, take a look at this clip, and then when the film comes out, make sure that you get a, get a hold of it so you see what's really going on in Georgia and America.
2: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us.
1: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about the lasting impact of inflation, and I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Robert Hockett, Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University and Senior Counsel for Westwood Capital. Dr. Hockett, thanks so much for joining me.
5: Hey, Jackie, really great to be with you again.
0: I'm really glad you are here to talk about this because I don't know why people thought that inflation was just going to go away and disappear, but it seems like some economists and maybe the government are surprised that the latest Bureau of Labor Statistics data, uh, which releases its monthly consumer price index, showed that overall consumer prices were up 8.3 percent in August compared to uh, the same time last year, higher than the analysts expected. I'm not sure why people thought that there would be, you know, this into inflation. But I, I don't know, what are your thoughts on the Consumer Price Index uh, data and what, what the market, what the experts are, are surprised about uh, that this data shows?
5: Yeah, great question, Jackie. I think this is almost literally a sort of glass half full, glass half empty sort of situation in the sense that they were sort of expecting uh, the numbers to be much better than last month. And they were expecting them to be better than last month by about 0.6%. Instead, they were better by 0.3%. In other words, they were expecting the rate to have dropped down to about 8 and instead it dropped down from 86 to 83 So it's still kind of good news. It's just not as good news as they were expecting. As for what why they were expecting such good news, which more directly gets to your query, I think it's a number of things, right? First of all, they've seen the markets reacting to the recent rate hikes that the Fed has uh, enacted. Um, and they've also, of course, seen the markets reacting to the promise made by Chairman Powell uh, to keep raising those rates <clears throat> Excuse me until – Inflation is under wraps. So I think there's been a kind of, you know, strange optimism, or it's almost a perverse form of optimism uh, on the part of the markets uh, because of that. Now the reason it's sort of perverse is that essentially what Powell is aiming to do is to do what people like Larry Summers have been calling on him to do, which is to engineer a higher unemployment rate in order to bring prices down, which sounds to me a bit like killing the patient. And if, you know, it's, you probably, I think we might have even talked before about how Larry Summers had suggested that, well, we need a 10% unemployment rate for a couple of years in order to bring this, uh, this uh, in, I'm sorry, this inflation rate down. That's, of course, insane. I mean, which which one out of every 10 people are you going to approach and say, sorry, you got to take your job away so that we can bring prices? Is down. And second, it's also kind of crazy because, of course, if you remember that the African American unemployment rate is typically about double the national average, then that means people like Larry Summers are calling for a 20% black unemployment rate, which is just inhuman. I mean, it's just insane.
0: Yeah, and I think a part of the uh, issue that is being ignored is that even though there had been, you know, a two month decline in gas prices, which I'm sure, you know, everybody was happy about, um, but other prices did not go down, and as a matter of fact, other prices went up. The government's food index rose 11.4 uh, percent. Food prices were up 0.8 percent from July to August. Flour was up 2.2 percent uh, during that time. Potato prices rose 2. Butter 1.9 percent. I mean, it, it is hard to miss the fact that while gas prices have gone down the fed continues to raise interest rates but nobody's paying any attention to the corporations that are raising prices on necessities that people need literally food How, what what is this play what does that aspect play in this in this inflation issue I
5: think it really it kind of highlights two major blunders in our approach to inflation thus far, in my in my estimation. And we talked a little bit about some of this before, but it it certainly bears uh, a revisit right now. Um, The first blunder, uh, of course, is that we're treating inflation as being strictly a monetary or aggregate demand uh, sort of phenomenon, right? Um, But in fact, inflation is always uh, a relational phenomenon. Inflation is a relation. I always say it's a relation between goods and services supplies on the one. Hand and money supplies on the other hand, to put the point kind of roughly. Uh, that means you can work from you know either side or both sides of the equation. Uh, and it seems to me that the sensible thing to be doing would be to be, you know, working double-time on the supply side of the equation, on the goods and services side, basically ramping up production like nobody's business, reshoring productive jobs of the kind that we spent decades outsourcing elsewhere, so that we can actually produce enough to absorb all of that money. That's the first blunder. Uh, happily it's beginning to turn around. A little bit. We're seeing some move toward increasing productive capacity, thanks to, um, you know, no thanks to Joe Manchin, really, but thanks to at least some of the Dems in Congress and the President. Uh, the other blunder, of course, is they treat wages as the sole determinant of prices, but that rather conveniently ignores the role that profits play as an even more important component of prices. And nobody's talking about taking those profits away from the what one or two percent of Americans who own all of these companies. They just look at the wage earners instead, which is insane, first of all, because wage growth is not keeping up with inflation growth, which already tells you, that's a pretty good clue that wage growth is not really the source here. It's just trying to keep up. And secondly, it's kind of crazy because we have all sorts of evidence um, that firms are price gouging. First of all, of course, there's the record profits that they're earning, which, again, are literally record profits. Uh, And second, of course, there are just hundreds and hundreds of anecdotal reports about CEOs chortling to their shareholders, that inflation is giving them cover to raise prices that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to raise. So that's, it seems to me, where the focus should be on production, on the one hand, uh, and on price gouging, i.e. excessive profit profits, uh, on the other hand, rather than attacking labor, as we always seem to do for some reason, even though 98% of us are laborers.
0: And, you know, Dr. Hockett, as I look at the the, some of the other reasons for the the rise in food prices because there are reasons that are not directly related to you know just price gouging although there is a lot of price gouging going on that there, there are things like you know there's a drought that is affecting uh, uh, the the rise in beef uh, prices um, and the rise in fruit and vegetables and uh, the price of uh, energy energy rates are rising uh, as electricity costs. More. How much are we ignoring the role of privatization of public services and not paying attention to climate change uh, impacting inflation?
5: Yeah, I think that's another critically important point, Jackie, that almost nobody raises. So I'm just, I'm so glad that you, you do raise it. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to me, uh, that you know, if you allow the privatization of public services, you're basically opening the door for more price gouging and more spheres of activity that used to be relatively stable and safe for ordinary people like, like you and me, right? Um, and sort of relatedly, uh, kind of the, biggest problem within that already big problem is the role that private equity companies in particular are playing in these privatizations and buyouts. They are buying up, of course, the housing stock that used to be owner-occupied and converting it to rental property where they then exploit renters who used to be able to be buyers. They are buying up, of course, and have bought up nursing homes where, of course, death rates of residents immediately skyrocket as soon as the private equity folk grab it. So, in effect, what we have is a piratical Industry, the private equity industry, that we're allowing to run rampant. And it's not even subject to the ordinary financial regulatory regime that most other financial institutions are subject to. So we do have to target that as well. That is no small part of the problem.
0: Yeah. And you did mention housing. I mean, this is an issue that's impacting. Every aspect of people, like the cost of housing, it, it continues to go up. Medical care, the cost of medical care continues to go up. New cars, furnishings, everything. Water, trash, trash collection, hospital, the price of everything is going up. So, Dr. Hockett, I mean, if the Fed does exactly what we know they're going to do, which is to raise the interest rates again in the next quarter, and they're going to push corporations to lay off a bunch of people to uh, uh, cool off the employment market, which means uh, increase unemployment. So then, then we have an issue not of inflation as much as what else? What what is the other side of that? If Making people jobless is the answer to solving these issues as opposed to actually regulating the market.
5: Yeah, I think it's almost a recipe for the old a uh, return of the old nineteen seventies stagflation, uh, Jackie, uh, in the following sense: um, if labor is not actually the cause of the inflation problem, then but then throwing lots of people out of work isn't really going to address the inflation problem. Meanwhile, if the real causes, including things like mo- uh, monopolistic or oligopolistic market power, price gouging, profiteering, private equity stripping, and um, and uh, extraction kind of continues. And of course, you'll see prices continuing to rise even as the unemployment rate rises. That just was what the stagflation of the 1970s uh, was. So it seems to me we ought to be you know, working double time, again, to head off that unhappy eventuality where you have sort of the worst of both worlds. You've got continuing inflation on the one hand of the sort that we associate with a boom with rising unemployment of the sort that we associate with a bust. And you don't want a boom and a bust at the same time. Uh, you know, Again, you've got both problems instead of the old trade-off that uh, economists used to be accustomed to. So you know, happily, I do think that many in the Biden administration and some in Congress are now at least asking the right questions and therefore looking in the right directions. And they're even talking to some extent as if they understand the real nature of the problem. But they still need to build up a critical mass behind that realization because we still don't have majorities in the Congress that understand. That that's the source of the inflation, or these are the sources of the inflation, and hence we need different means of addressing the inflation than the usual, you know, the usual prescription that Powell is offering right now.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of stagflation, it was President Nixon. I'll give him credit for this much. He did Mm -hmm. implement price controls and make it illegal uh, to for corporations to price gouge. Do you see that kind of action coming from the Biden administration?
5: I certainly would not discount that possibility. I mean, I know that they're looking at it carefully and they are not, you know, kind of, let's say, Theologically or metaphysically opposed to the idea in the way that previous administrations after Nixon's uh, have been. So they might very well do it. And there's certainly support in Congress, at the very least, to start looking at the actual sources of price rises and to pay attention, therefore, to profit rates rather than merely wage rates. So we might end up seeing some kind of, some form of price controls, whether it be the classic Nixonian way of doing it or whether it be the various ways that F. FDR did it in order to sort of keep inflation down during the massive Second World War expenditures uh, or some other means. But I I suspect if the inflation problem continues, uh, that they will uh, turn uh, to those sorts of uh, mechanisms.
0: We want to thank you so much, Dr. Hockett, for joining us on this segment. We are out of time. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, how to approach the issue of reparations appealing to the conscience of uh, the system or demands from a position of strength. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Mark Francher, human rights attorney and writer. Mark, thanks so much for joining me.
4: Oh, no, thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: I'm really glad you could join me for this conversation, because the piece you wrote in Black Agenda Report that is actually titled Reparations by Appeal to Conscience – or by demands from a position of strength I think highlights the the tension uh that has existed in the reparations movement at least in the modern era since you know uh since mother uh, uh, Moore spearheaded the uh, domestic uh, as far as in the United States reparations movement and in the the latest uh iterations of uh, the reparations movement there have been internal discussions uh, between people who are uh, advocates of reparations of how we do that. So give us a little bit of an oversight uh, or or a little insight into your article and how far back this kind of uh, a conflict or tension between how we go about this, this uh, pursuit of reparations, uh, how far back it really goes.
4: Well, reparations uh, is one manifestation of of black struggle. Uh, It is one effort to uh, achieve justice. But our people have tried to do it in a number of different ways. And and, in the article, I point out how uh, in 1919, W.E.B. Du Bois and others who uh, had identified pan-Africanism as uh, an approach to uh, global African liberation uh, first began Uh, making efforts to have uh, global discussions about Pan-Africanism. And they wanted to do that in Paris, France. Uh, They approached the French government about whether they could do that. And it became clear to them at the outset that they were in a very vulnerable position, that uh, all of Africa was colonized. Uh, Europe was not that interested in having these these black people come together and talk about liberating Africa. Uh, And so their approach once they did get permission to hold the, the Pan African Congress in, in Paris in 1919, was one of people who were not holding a winning hand. Uh, and so what emerged from that were resolutions that were very conciliatory, uh, very moderate in tone by any standard. Uh, at the time, the uh, League of Nations was placing many colonial uh, holdings in, you know, trusteeship. And so they suggested that maybe Africa should come under the control of uh, the League of Nations rather than under the control of the colonizing countries, and that uh, the the natives, as they described them, uh, should have access to land and other things as they demonstrated their capacity to get it. Uh, You know, this was a very, you know, by our standards, uh, very conciliatory, very um, passive kind of a way to approach uh, the the question of liberation. But that was not static. That was, you know, something that existed at the time because they felt that they couldn't demand more. But by 1945, when they had the fifth Pan-African Congress, uh, things had changed. Uh, you know, it was at the end of World War II. Europe was more weak and vulnerable. It looked like the possibilities for African liberation uh, were much greater than they had been, and so the approach was much more militant. They knew that the Western powers were on the ropes. Uh, they knew that the time was ripe for struggle, and so they came out swinging. Uh, their resolutions you know, included attacks on capitalists, the capitalist system. Uh, it was demanding basically liberation and independence now, uh, and it even threatened uh, armed struggle. Uh, saying that if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it by force, and we don't care if it blows up the world in the process. Uh, So you you see this continuing phenomenon uh, as the years go by. Uh, When the civil rights movement first begins, uh, there's a belief, you know, this is is the Jim Crow South uh, where black people are locked down. Uh, They don't have much opportunity to do very much. At least they don't perceive that they do. They don't look like they have that much leverage, that they have that much strength. Uh, And and, and there's also sort of a naive belief that if they appeal to the conscience of the white power structure— Uh, that they will see the error of their ways and that they will include black people in the American dream and make it possible for them to become part of the mainstream. So the approach is one where we're asking for your your benevolence, we're asking for your understanding, we're asking for you to do what the right thing, uh, and we're showing you the error of your ways. Uh, And when that became clear, when it became clear later, that uh, that was not going to resonate with the white power structure, then you see the emergence of the black power movement, which is we're gonna take power by any means necessary. We're gonna be as militant as we have to be. Uh, So this is a recurring thing where you have uh, perceptions that we can only ask for so much and we can only ask for it in a certain way versus more militant approaches that follow uh, the consolidation of whatever strength uh, that is available uh, and use of it as leverage to threaten and to act if necessary to actually take uh, what is being demanded. And so we see that now with reparations. Uh, you know, for some time, uh, the perception has been that if the if United States in particular is going to grant reparations, Uh, then that's something that they're going to have to make the decision about, that the most that we can do is to make the case for reparations, that we can explain why it's necessary, why it's just, why it's appropriate. Uh, And, you know, if they won't listen to it informally and in political fora, then we can file lawsuits and try and persuade the courts. I mean, it is, uh, you know, arguing for this from a position of being dominated, that, you know, we don't have the power. And we're asking you to give it up. We're asking you to do justice and to do right by us. And uh, so there, has, there was a recent conference in Accra, Ghana, mm-hmm. uh, on the issue of reparations, uh, where you see some of those same kinds of themes emerging. Uh, you know, coming out of that were you know, very strong uh, articulations of the African condition globally. You know, the fact that uh, colonialism, apartheid, capitalism, all these things had done terrible things to the African world, and that the only just and right thing would be for reparations to be paid to African people globally. Um, But then you get to what they're suggesting as approaches, and one of them includes uh, asking for foundations and nonprofits to get on board with this. You know asking for meetings uh, with major corporations and Western governments and things like that to try and persuade them and so again, you see this this suggestion that we don't have the power to force this issue, so we're going to have to ask for participation and cooperation from uh, these forces that do have the power and hope that they give us what we want and It raises the question of whether that's effective, whether there's any. You know, whether that's even appropriate for us given our circumstances, you know, and the length of time that we've been oppressed uh, and the justice that we deserve, um, and whether there are other ways of doing this, uh, whether it is possible for us to consolidate, organize uh, our strength as African people uh, in such a way that we're able to approach them from a position of strength and to say, look, we're giving you a chance to do this voluntarily. But if you don't do it voluntarily, we're going to take it. And that's the question. How do we get to that point? Uh, And, and, you know, I guess the larger question is for whether we want to be in that position. Mm. I think that the broad masses of African people are probably at that point.
0: Yeah. And, and I think what you brought up and what you raise in your uh, article about the nonprofit industrial complex and uh, that entity being a, a part of a potential rep- reparation solution is really I mean, that that's like a, a, a loaded kind of uh, that. That's a trap. <laughs> right. Because we know that capital uh, capitalism has basically captured the nonprofit industrial complex where it is uh, a, a a capitalist uh institution now uh so there 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 are raising there are questions raised when we're talking about we want uh you know funds from uh, uh, these NGOs or we want NGOs to be uh, um, uh, established who's controlling those NGOs and and ultimately that means who controls us. So I'm wondering if you can go into a little bit more about why that particular issue, the NGOs and the nonprofit industrial complex, uh, uh, as a, as a reparation solution, is is so so messy.
1: Yeah, you
4: know we we don't have long memories, uh, but. We, we now take for granted that all of this vast network of, of nonprofits and social uh, service organizations and agencies and all of these things, that they were always around, that these 501c3s were always here. Uh, and that's not true. Uh, before the 1960s, uh, there was not much of that around. And it was the Black Panther Party uh, that really uh, developed the prototype. Uh, for the modern nonprofit social service agency, they set up all kinds of community service programs, everything from feeding breakfast to children to tutorial programs, ambulance services, sickle cell screening, uh, you know, all kinds of different, a whole range of, of social service agencies uh, that endeared them uh, to the black community and built strong bonds between the Panther Party and the community. And the capitalists took note of that. Uh, They knew that that's what made them so dangerous in terms of their connection, and they hijacked the whole concept Uh, so that by establishing uh, foundations and philanthropic organizations and entities that fund 501c3 organizations and social service organizations and agencies and even advocacy groups, uh, they hold within their hands the capacity uh, to not just redirect but to kill uh, grassroots honest movements. Uh, so that when they begin to see that there is real interest in mass incarceration, then all of a sudden uh, the philanthropic organizations, uh, the foundations, they all say, We're interested in providing grants to organizations that are doing work with respect to mass incarceration. So these little organizations all uh, come together, they submit their applications, and they get grants. And once they get the grants, Uh, then there are limitations and restrictions placed on how they can use the money. And the ways in which they can use the money are always uh, ways, approaches, and methods that don't come anywhere close to any type of revolutionary kind of approach. And if, for whatever reason, there is momentum that's built as a result of the funding that they do get, and a movement does emerge, which looks like it's going to make real inroads, it's going to make real progress. Uh, with respect to that issue, then they kill the the movement by saying, well, we're not interested in funding mass incarceration anymore. Now we're interested in funding uh, issues related to immigration. And so everybody changes direction. They drop all the mass incarceration work that they were doing, because now they've got employees on the payroll, they've got to pay rent, they've got to do these things, and so they make applications to do immigration work. And so the same thing happens over and over again. They keep, you know, at breakneck speed, they change their focus and their interest depending upon how much progress is being made on the issue that they choose to fund. And so if reparations uh, activists are looking to have their work funded uh, by these entities and these foundations and these organizations, it's likely they're going to run into the same thing. If they, through their work, begin to develop real momentum Uh, in the movement, and it becomes clear that reparations might become a reality, and for whatever reason, if it does, it's going to threaten the interests of capitalism, Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, that funding is going to dry up, uh, or they're going to be faced with threats, uh, that if they don't redirect the focus of their work, uh, then they're going to lose the money. Uh, So that's, you know, they've developed this. It's a fine, it's a high art that they've raised it to, uh, and they know how to control our communities now through the use of this
0: yeah they definitely do and you know i'm encouraged uh that this latest conference was held in accra ghana and you did you know talk about the uh, pan african congresses there were several of them that occurred uh in paris and, and uh in other african countries so that that i hope Lays to rest, although I know it really will not, the idea that, you know, reparations for Africans in the United States is some separate thing from the global claim of reparations for all African people, no matter where we were dropped off in the diaspora through the transatlantic uh, crime against humanity. But what is the answer for this, you know, global claim of reparations for Africans if we understand that it's not depending on, you know, the largesse of the oppressors to, you know, have their conscience pricked and say, well, yes, we did a bad thing and we need to make it right. We know that's not going to happen, particularly as we're seeing uh, the changing of the guard in the monarchy in the UK. And uh, now King Charles is certainly not going to give up any of the uh, spoils that were stolen from uh, those oppressed peoples that are in the crown jewels and all of their wealth. He's not giving any of that back. So I think that is a reflection of how all former uh, colonial powers, uh, how all oppressors around the globe uh, will respond to the claim for reparations. So so what is the answer for uh, uh, Africans in this global claim for reparations?
4: Well, I, I think you're hinting at it there. And I think that the gathering in, in Accra uh, flirted with the solution, and and that is that they uh, recognized that this is a, that the, the the slavery and imperialism and colonialism, all of these were global enterprises uh, that were carried out by interlocking forces, and that the uh, victims of all of it were not limited to any one country, not just the United States, not just countries in the Caribbean, not not just countries in Africa, but all of us were impacted. You know they they. Uh, attacked us. They exploited us. They oppressed us for different reasons in different places, but all for the same purpose and the same objective. And what came out of the conference was something very positive, the suggestion that we need to stop identifying with the microstates that we live in rather than just being African-Americans or you know African-Jamaicans or Afro-Brazilians or whatever it is, that now that we recognize that we are all global Africans, that's the term that they use, uh, which puts us all in the same, the same oppressed family globally. And if we begin to see ourselves as part of one global uh, nation uh, of African people, uh, then our perceptions of what's possible change. You know, we don't see ourselves as just a little minority group in North America uh, that has to hope that the system extends mercy to us. Now we begin to see possibilities of calling upon African people throughout the world to engage in concerted action, uh, to get what it is that we want. And how specifically we do that is something that we have to work out. But our possibilities expand incredibly if we're working Uh, cooperatively and uh, effectively and with eyes wide open with African people throughout the world. There are an awful lot of us, and we're in every populated country in the world. Uh, We have in varying places, varying degrees of resources and access to this or that. Some of us live in Africa. Some of us live in the belly of the beast, where we can potentially sabotage it and undermine it. I mean, we've got all kinds of possibilities. And if we think creatively about how uh, we can bring the system to a screeching halt if we don't get what we want, uh, then we're thinking in ways that put us in a position uh, to demand and to take those things which are due to us. And the more that we begin to think globally and act globally, and the more that we begin to function independently, relying upon our own media, our own information sources, rather than those that um, present are presented and organized and, and uh, used by the, the capitalists to help us do things like, I think that, uh, there's, that the monarchy is a great thing. Uh, then the, the more likely we are to achieve what we want. And the ultimate prize, really, is the capture of Africa itself. Uh, once Africa is totally liberated, once it's united as one country, once it becomes socialist from Cape to Cairo, uh, then we've won the ballgame at that point.
0: Absolutely. That is the gold. One united Africa, united under scientific socialism. But we're out of time for this segment. Thank you so much, Mark Francher, for joining me. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, it is I, my friends, Jackie Lukman. I am sitting in for our captain, Sean Blackman, who is uh, taking a well-deserved vacation. It is. I don't know what today is. There's so much going on with me. I don't know what today is. I think it's probably September 14th. I think I'm close. and in 20 minutes i will be happy to take your calls to uh, ask me anything about anything you've heard on the show anything at all that's going on in the world i am happy to hear from you but that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at by any means necessary because all our allies accomplices and comrades that's y'all can reach out and touch us here at the show by any means necessary in washington dc by calling us at 202 202- 521-1320. That's 202. 521-1320 at 320 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can also listen to our shows at Sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E.digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble Right now, that's rumble.com slash C slash B A M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 320 PM Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I am really happy to be joined today by Eleanor Goldfield a creative activist journalist co-host of Project Censored and the filmmaker behind the fantastic documentary Hard Road of Hope. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. Always a pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure to have you on again, especially since I don't even know where to start. I think I think I want to start with this this story that I just seemed to have come out of nowhere, but it really is or has been a fight that uh, indigenous people in the Odom tribe uh, have been fighting against the Department of Homeland Security and the Customs and Border Patrol against finishing what DHS uh, and CPB uh, or CBP calls. Their virtual wall. What in the world is going on with this virtual wall? What is it and why is this such a big deal and have such an impact on this uh, community of indigenous people?
6: Yeah, Jackie, I mean, it it feels, I mean, I get, if it It just even feels like saying something Orwellian is Orwellian these days becomes a cliche of a cliche, because I feel like everything's just Orwellian. <laughs> but it really truly is. And it reminds me a little bit of the panopticon, uh, the idea that everyone is being surveilled at all times, regardless of whether they're in a cell or not. Uh, and this is really what that system is. And it comes from the specialists, uh you know, the, the 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 overseers of the largest uh, open air prison in the world, Israel, uh, Elbit Systems, which is an Israeli company, created something called an IFT, an integrated fixed tower. And basically what this is, is it's a surveillance system. And there are a series of towers that are equipped with night vision, thermal cameras, ground sweeping radar systems, and feeds this information to monitors in control centers located along the U.S.-Mexico border and also increasingly on agents' individual cell phones. Uh, and they're also supported by drone surveillance. So this basically means that you do not need a wall, a physical wall, because you have something even better. You have constant, uh, you have constant surveillance of the border vis-a-vis these towers. And you mentioned, Jackie, that this is on Tohono Odinum land, uh, and this basically is a, um, uh, a a very important area because the United States and the splitting of the United States and Mexico has basically split this nation. Their ancestral lands are on both what we now consider Mexico and the United States. And for a long time, they were have been able to pass without any issues, without walls, without surveillance. Uh, and a lot of that is very important to their way of life, to get water, uh, to be able to access their ancestral ways of life. And their uh, their concerns were brought up when there was talk of constructing an actual wall, but this is no less frightening and terrifying, and also has no less uh, implications in terms of uh, in terms of the ways of life. And actually, there were some members of the Tono Odunum Nation who actually went to occupied Palestine, uh, I believe, a few years ago, and talked to Palestinians who had been you know the test subjects of this system, and got. Information from them about what it was like, and saying uh, you know, a lot of people talked about there being constant buzzing uh, because of the how the, the these things are 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 run, uh, and of course the increased amount of stress and terror uh, living under what is a, a nonstop surveillance system that you can't even hide from in the dark, uh, and uh, this is absolutely terrifying and has received, of course, no. Corporate media attention, uh, and this uh, this really this really speaks to. the the trial ground, you know, the indigenous of the United States are like the Palestinians in Israel. Uh, And there's no reason to think that such IFTs won't be deployed in other ways and other places, uh, particularly with the the, the people that are deemed uh, lesser than in the United States, which will include more indigenous communities, black communities, uh, communities of color in general. So this is absolutely terrifying as it stands today, but also as we look into the future, the potentials for this.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's worth noting that uh, the uh, Tohono O'odham Nation was the lone holdout uh, for CBP completing uh, the construction of the rest of these towers up until 2017. And from 2015 to 2018, in uh, Chukut Cook district member Joshua Garcia did more than 30 workshops on the IFTs and talked about in these workshops how the federal government encroached on Odom lands, uh, the health consequences of these IFTs, the loss of control of local roads and, of course, racist border policing, um, because he felt that people were getting just the CBP version of what these IFTs, what these towers would do. So, you know, I'm wondering if you can give people a little bit of insight, uh, Eleanor, into the kinds of things that Joshua Garcia was raised, the kinds of things that. Uh, That our impacts on the health of an already marginalized community in in every way, including health in this country, Uh, the the loss of tribal sovereignty, the loss of their land. I mean, what does this really mean in concrete terms for the people of uh, this uh, community?
6: Well, I, I certainly won't speak for them. Uh, I, I think that they've there. There have been several uh, several folks from that nation who have spoken out about this. But from what I've gleaned, what they've shared, it it's it it speaks to things that you know you've talked about on your show before, and that I've spoken to as well. That borders, in and of themselves, are violence. They are acts of violence, uh, and they never they never go along the lines of that nature or the the people who have called that place home for millennia. Uh, that the, 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 they would have that be a, be a border. It always intersects. Uh, and that's very much this, the, the, the case here. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that they have their ancestral lands are across what we now consider Mexico and the United States. and the increasing militarization of that border has meant that they have had a much harder time being able to access things as simple as water for not just themselves, but for livestock uh, and, uh, and, and the the things that they rely on for food and basic survival, which I think is another thing that a lot of folks in the U.S. might not be able to, to latch onto because we, most of us don't have livestock. Most of us don't need to travel for water. Of course, unless you're like in Jackson or Baltimore, you know, uh, (laughs) the, the pillars of the city on the Hill. Uh, but it's something that, I don't think a a lot of us can really relate to. So I think just something simple like that uh, is, is such a, it's a, it's a cornerstone of their way of life that is being threatened. And of course there's border violence. Uh, There is uh, because the CBP and you know, what I would call today's American Gestapo are constantly in that area. Uh, And of course, as we know, the more, Uh, law enforcement that you have in an area, the less safe it is, Uh, the more uh, conflicts you have with those people. And of course, there's a long history of American law enforcement versus indigenous peoples. So this inherently makes the place less safe. And I think there's also uh, an, an issue of of the, of, of the people feeding off of this energy in a negative way. There was some something that uh, a reporter mentioned in a Counterpunch article about this, that uh, members of the Tono Odom tribe actually voted for this system because they had seen that there had been incidents along the border uh, and uh, that there is border crime, and they were concerned about that. And so there uh, some folks are feeding into this. Oh, well, well then we need these systems. We need the law enforcement because it will make us safer. But as you and I both know, Jackie, that is not the case, uh, and so it's, there's not only an issue of, uh, of of ancestral ways of life being threatened. It's a it's a question of current lives being threatened in terms of their ability to access water and livestock, but also in order to live in a communal way, in a in a community way that one can only live in when law enforcement isn't constantly at your door. And when I say at your door, I mean that uh, literally, and also. In a uh, in a sort of digital sense, because as as we know, when you when you're aware that you're being surveilled constantly, that that lifestyle, the psychological effects of this uh, are are horrific, and I think that this is something that we've seen from from folks in Palestine, but it's something that we are very quickly going to be seeing uh, in in this area as well.
0: And you know, Eleanor, this leads me to this question of how the system pits marginalized groups of people against each other because it's certainly not lost on me that members of this tribe this community went to palestine and talked to the people this system was tested on first and they were actually told you know yes the, the uh, um the, the us government or israel tested this System on us in Palestine first before they went and built them uh, in the United States to make sure that you know they they work and they and they can track the people that they want and that they can detain and contain the people that they want and here the United States government with their friends uh, uh, Israel the fascist government of Israel is now using this community of marginalized people against other folks who will be other marginalized people and I, and i'm wondering if you are seeing uh the the escalation of that what are your thoughts on that how easily the us government it manages to pit groups of marginalized people against each other with too little resistance, as long as they can bring up the specter of, oh look, there's crime that that could impact your community, so we're here to help.
6: Yeah, absolutely, Jack. I mean, it's it's one of the oldest oldest uh, tricks in the book, and I think you know you see it being used all over all over the world. And uh, I believe that the, the guest that you had on before was talking about imperialism and. Uh, you know, you, and I think that this is this is one of those this is one of those tricks, uh, and I think it's 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 worth noting that uh, you know in these communities when there's a struggle not to thrive there's a struggle to survive, mm. and when you have those struggles when you when your basic needs are not being met it is a lot easier to push people into uh into fights into you know long standing tiffs and arguments with people that they have no reason to to be against uh, and, and, and I think that this, you know, anybody who's who's ever struggled to, uh, to to make ends meet can speak to this as well. You don't have time to sit down and think about, well, am I trying, are they manipulating me right now? Or if somebody comes to you and says, here's the reason for your pain and suffering, and I we can make it better with this, that is so tempting. You know, it's like putting a steak in front of a starving person. It's like, yes, I want to believe that it is that simple. And we see that everywhere from, you know, the U.S. to Germany to, I mean, right now in Sweden, too, uh, the the, uh, the 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 issue of pitting people against each other that are under the same boot. And yet it's it's so difficult to look up when you're in the muck and see that it is that very same boot. And I think it's also worth noting that, uh, you know, as these communities struggle to make ends meet, you know, this this uh, this contract with Elbit Systems was 218 million dollars that went to this Israeli company to create this horrific uh, surveillance system, and at the same time, there's money going to build bridges and, uh, and and roads in order to access these towers because they have to be kept up. So who I mean, people are making bank off of that, uh, you know, millions of millions of dollars that's going to CBP and uh, you know uh, private companies that are getting these contracts to build these uh, roads and bridges, and that money is of course, never going to go into these communities. And that makes it just that much easier to say, oh, well, these people are here to help us and this is going to make us safer. When of course we know that that's not true, but I think that, uh, you know, it's a lot, it's very difficult to, uh, to, um, uh, it's, it's very difficult to remove oneself From that uh, from that space and look at it logically when your basic needs aren't being met. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a classic ploy,
0: but it doesn't make it any less uh, effective. Yeah, definitely, especially when we're talking about a system that perpetuates the marginalization of communities of people, uh, so that they are always in survival mode, and it it is, in my opinion, not above the same system to create these kinds of um, uh, crises uh, along the so-called border that they imposed, by the way, on these people uh, to say, look, you need our help. That this is th- this situation uh, uh, will help. While at the same time, they're just planning to deploy uh, this kind of Orwellian, a uh, uh, rights-violating uh, and and humanity-violating technology uh, on a wider scale all across the country. IFT's coming to another marginalized community near you. Look out for it, but. We're going to move to a quick break right now on By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. We will be back. So please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Some lines are now open. Friends, two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. I am Jackie Lukman, and I continue to be joined by Eleanor Goldfield. And Eleanor, you had mentioned a little bit earlier uh, about uh, the. Conflict or the tension going on in Swedish politics. So I want to go there because there's some interesting uh, goings on with the recent elections in Sweden. Uh, general elections were held on uh, September 11th, if I'm uh, correct. Uh, and the 349 seat Unicameral Swedish parliament uh, saw a voter turnout of this is unbelievable to me because it's just it would just never happen in this country. Eighty one point three percent, eighty one point three percent of the population of Sweden actually thought it was important enough to go and vote. Amazing. I don't know if we're ever going to see that in this country. I don't think we ever will. Not with this two party system we have. But the issue apparently is that a right wing Quite literally, party that was formed by former Nazis and fascists could win the majority just by one vote. What is going on in Swedish politics, Eleanor? <laughs> <laughs>
6: uh, I, you know, w- when I was when I was younger, I used to talk about the US and be like, "Oh, wow. I mean, the US is messed up. I'm glad that I'm also a citizen of Sweden." And now I'm like, "Well, I'm just lost." <laughs> I <laughs> Both of these countries are just off. Uh So So yeah, so the also the interesting thing about the 81.3% is it's actually the lowest voter turnout since 2006. So wow. <laughs> <laughs> so to throw that into into, uh, into comparison with the U S. But I think that, so basically what's going on is that the Sweden Democrats, which I will never stop finding it amusing. It one has to find joy where one can, that the fascist party in Sweden is the Sweden Democrats. Um, I, (laughs) they are now the second largest party in Sweden and that is horrifying, but it is also not surprising. Uh, several uh, political writers and thinkers have pointed out that neoliberalism is the paved road to fascism, and it is it is smooth and glides easy, and that is so very clear right now in Sweden. Uh, and actually, the final vote tally came in just about an hour ago. Mm. And yeah, the 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 right wing coalition, because Sweden has more parties than the U.S. Almost every other country does. <laughs> <But> <laughs> there are, there's basically the the left-wing coalition and the right-wing coalition, and the right-wing coalition coalition uh, is made up of uh, the, the the moderates, the liberals, the Christian Democrats, and the Sweden Democrats. And in the past, uh, the other members of the right-wing coalition have refused to work with the Sweden Democrats because they're like, "Hey, y'all are fascist, not cool, not down with it. That's not our gig. And now it seems quite clear that they're going to. And the uh, the assumed next prime minister of Sweden, Ulf Kristersson, is uh, has already met with the head of the Sweden Demo- Democrats, uh, and it seems very clear that they're going to be buddy buddy with another with one another. Um, the uh, some of the liberals, uh, which is part of the right wing coalition, have. Uh, one in particular has said that she is going to throw a wrench into the workings of building a new government, which will happen between now, basically in the 26th of September, uh, when parliament goes back into session. And she's saying that she's she's not going to uh, she's going to stand in the way of the Sweden Democrats being a part of this. So what happens now is that these people have to kind of scramble and build a government. Uh, The current, uh, well, she's outgoing. The outgoing prime minister, Magdalena Andersson, has already said that she's stepping down. Uh, So the person that's going to take her place is presumably Ulf Kershason, who is a a monster and has a long history of being absolutely corrupt and horrific. Uh, And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's shocking to me that people haven't haven't looked into this, but I think it's because I expected more of of Swedes in this moment, but I've been totally let down. Uh, and so Christson has uh, he's is bit of like a good old boy uh, politician. um and as he 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 was a politician in Stangnes and Stockholm on a on a local level and did a bang up job of uh, selling off. Uh, city and 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 state holdings to private companies who would then lease them back to the to the city or the the, the community um and he obviously makes bank off of these uh, these dealings and he famously skipped the very long line for housing in Stockholm and through private dealings got himself an apartment in central Stockholm that was actually marked for homeless or chronically <laughs> ill people, wow, which he is neither, obviously, <laughs> uh, and uh, and and so he's that kind of person. And this is the person who is going to be presumably heading the government of Sweden. And his party, along with other members of the the right wing coalition, including the Christian Democrats, want to outlaw abortion. They want more nuclear power plants. Uh, they want to be "quote unquote" hard on crime, which, as we all know, means more police. They want more cameras around the city. Uh, they want, uh, you know, more heavy-handed uh, um, punishments for crimes. So this all sounds very reminiscent, and I've actually written about it in 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 Swedish, uh, of, in 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 Swedish um, outlets about how I see Sweden in the, in the rearview mirror of the U S and Sweden's gaining on us. (laughs) Sweden is so desperate to do what the U S empire has done and isn't, uh, it it, it doesn't seem to be happy just being the sycophant of U S empire vis-a-vis NATO. Sweden apparently just really wants to be the U S in all of the terror and horror that that embodies. And, Again, I am saddened and disgusted, but I'm not that surprised.
0: Mm. And you know, you brought up NATO, so I, so I definitely want to find out, you know, what the uh, uh, the issue of Sweden's uh, membership in NATO means if the uh, Sweden Democrats do indeed uh, uh, maintain their slim majority. But I, but I think. The thing that that really struck me, Eleanor, was that you said that there was one politician, one politician who has said that she will uh, stand in the way of the Sweden Democrats uh, forming a coalition government. Is she the only one? Is everyone else? I mean, what about the so-called social Democrats? What are they doing? Is there really just one politician in Sweden who is like, nope? really not going to let the fascists take over and everyone else (laughs) is really just like, no, they're not so bad.
6: (laughs) So it's actually not up to the, uh, to the social Democrats anymore because they have lost the, uh, the power. And that's why Magdalena Andersson, who's a social Democrat is, is, is leaving her, her post as prime minister. So the, the right wing coalition has now the job of forming a coalition government. Uh, and there's, I mean, this this woman has been the most, uh, Romina Purmokari has been the most outspoken about standing in the way of SD, the Sweden Democrats. There are other liberals who have in the past said something similar, whether they are going to stand by that or just, you know, be, uh, be caught up in the excitement of the moment. Uh, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, but there is... Because the I, I believe the final count was one seventy six to one seventy three, so they have a little bit more leeway. They've got three uh, extra, so they have uh, they th- there have to be more. There there needs to be more than one person who stands up. it would likely come from the liberals because they have the ones in in the past been the ones to stand up and say no. Now, of course, on the left uh, or the so-called left coalition, uh, you've got the the left party, you've got the Green Party uh, and you have the Social Democrats, which I I mean, to be perfectly honest, they're a a, a hollowed out shell of a Mm. party. I mean, they are they are not at all what you'd expect from somebody who believe supposedly in the tenets of socialism and democracy. Um, but uh, there are many people on the left who have said that they would never work with SD, but that's not their choice anymore. Um, and so basically what what what's happening now is uh, we have to see if there's if if, there, if the right is going to build uh, build this build this government. And if so, then it's 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 looking very, very scary. But I'd say it looks scary anyway, because even on the left, You know, the outgoing prime minister, Magdalena Andersson, straight up said to reporters after a meeting with Swedish weapons manufacturers, of which there are many, by the way, Sweden is the third largest weapons exporter in the world. uh, She said joining NATO is going to be good for Sweden uh, weapons contractors. She just said that like. Everyone's just saying the quiet part loud now, I guess, and she's doing the same thing. So it's not like the social democrats have stood up against imperialism or war. In fact, there have been very few people who have done that. Uh, as, you know, so some people in the in the in the left party and whatnot, but very few have stood up and said NATO is a terrible idea. Let's not do this. Uh, and so I. I wouldn't expect anything to change on on the NATO front or on the uh,
0: the, the 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 war the war hawking front. Wow. <laughs> that's that's pretty depressing. But we have a caller on the line old man Maurice. He wanted to be introduced that way. I am not throwing shade at the brother. What's on your mind?
3: Well, I just had to say how wonderful it is to to be part and listen to two of the most brilliant people I know. And I just get to see and hear the two of you together, you know, clearing out a path for us to move forward. It's a blessing. And I just wanted to say hello and thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Maurice. You are not an old man. I feel real weird calling you that. You might feel You're not that an way. old man at all. Not at all. I, I, Oh, I totally get feeling like old with everything. But but yeah, we we've, we've got quite a few years left in us. And and, you know. Eleanor, I think that that raises the issue of of hope. We always talk about this on, on the show, and I think probably Sean is better at revolutionary optimism than I am, probably because I am, a you know, kind of a crotchety middle middle aged lady. Who just doesn't have a lot of patience for a lot of stuff? So it has just gotten worse in the past couple of months. so I, I I feel that, you know, you are in the midst of seeing Sweden change for the worst, the absolute worst, basically begging to be a vassal state of the United States, like literally begging, please, you know, call us your backyard too, <laughs> without the invasion. Mm-hmm. And where do you find hope throughout all of this? I mean, there were protests against uh, uh, um, uh, energy, uh, the rise in energy costs in Germany uh, and in other places. And people have been protesting NATO, but but that has not moved the the political uh, arena. Where where do you find hope in all of this?
6: Uh I mean, I, <laughs> uh, I'm i going to quote a friend that will remain unnamed for the fat, per, reason that we're on air. Uh, he said that I have a kind of hope that burns cop cars. Mm. And I, I think of that often because hope is jagged. Hope is raw. I think hope oftentimes walks with despair. Hope is not optimism. And I don't, I don't have optimism. I have hope. Uh, and in fact, Maurice, who again is not an old man. And, uh, I I would definitely say if folks are, if folks are listening and are not familiar with the work of Maurice Cook, please go check out serve your city. It's a fantastic organization, uh, that he once told me was all about invading white spaces,
0: which (laughs) I just love. Yeah. He told you that too, huh?
6: But, but I, I mean, I honestly, like it's people like that, that I find hope in. And I know that that can sound trite but i think that it's the people who are continuously doing the work of breaking down these barriers of 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 invading white spaces as an act of revolution as an act of anti-imperialism anti-racism anti-colonialism like these are acts that build upon a future that we all want that we all believe in and I think that's why, yes, I'm very upset about what happened in Sweden. It's disgusting. But I also don't really believe in voting. Mm. (laughs) I think that voting is like using your turn signal when you're driving. It's like, yes, that's nice, but it's not going to stop you from being T-boned by an 18-wheeler. Uh, and so I think like we are in the intersection with an 18 wheeler right now and somebody's yelling at you to use your turn signal. What's the point? I mean, yes, vote if, if you're if you feel called to do that. But don't expect applause. Don't expect people to say that that's all we have to do. For me, hope lies in those in those jagged spaces, in the spaces that build community, uh, in, in in spaces that act in opposition to the systems that make it possible for fascists to win in the first place, <laughs> and if you look at Swedish media right now, everyone's just sitting around the table being like, "Yes, yeah, so tonight's a really good uh, night for the Swedish Democrats." I'm like, "Why is nobody saying the word Nazi? Are we like, mm. can we just why are we?" And but this is this is that system, and so to me, there's no hope in a system that is. Creating cover for Nazis, whether that be in Sweden or the U.S. or Ukraine or where wherever it may be, the hope lies in the people who are building outside of this purview. And a great example uh, that I'll that I'll give uh, as a as a last note on this is tonight, during when all of these results were coming in, there was a meeting uh, that I was a, a part of about protecting a forest. In Sweden, that's being uh, that's being threatened with clear cut because that's another thing that Sweden's very good at. In the last uh, ten years, is cutting down all of its old growth forests, and so while all these results are coming in, and the whole entire country is focused on this information, the people who are actually doing the work to ensure that something is protected, that some some space, some beautiful ecosystem is not destroyed. They are the ones not paying attention to the election results. They are the ones doing that work that is actually going to see us through to a tomorrow if we get there. And so I think that is the kind of hope that I have. And it doesn't come easy and it doesn't always come at all, but it is there and it is resilient,
0: uh, far more resilient than Nazis. Definitely. I I believe that's true. But we've got a lot of organizing to do to uh, defeat them. But we're going to pick this up on the other side of another quick break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukman, and I continue to be joined by Eleanor Goldfield. And Eleanor, a couple of folks in the By Any Means Necessary chat, shout out to our good friends, our stalwart friends in the By Any Means Necessary chat, made a couple of really great comments uh, about uh, uh, voting uh, in regard to Sweden. But I think there's some other issues that I want to dig into and get your thoughts on. Um, one question was uh, about the voter turnout in Sweden, and it was asked that you know people were probably take able to take time off from work to go vote. Is that true? Is is voting like a holiday in Sweden? Do people get that day off so they can actually go vote, or do, what? What? What's? Why is the voter turnout so high in Sweden?
6: So voting is actually on a Sunday. Uh, So that makes it easier for for most folks. Um, And it's also you can vote ahead of time. So early voting, you can vote ahead of time pretty much anywhere. Uh, You can mail in a ballot if you're not in the country, uh, which I've done, you know, a lot of times when I've been in the US. Uh, And, you know, I I can vote ahead of time. Let's say that I'm in you know, I I I live in Stockholm, but I'm out at my mom's place, which is not close by. I can vote ahead of time there, so I don't have to travel all the way back to Stockholm to vote at my pr- proper, you know, voting place. And so they they make it very uh, a bit well, they make it a lot easier for people to vote in Sweden. Uh, not least of all, because it is on a Sunday. Uh, And, you know, they make uh, they make it easier for folks if there's uh, if there's mobility issues and things like that. There are a lot of ways that people have support
0: uh, to vote in Sweden. And this leads me to the other end of the question, because it's great that you have a country that makes voting not only accessible, but I mean, it's it's easy. It's on Sunday. You you know, there is assistance. You can you can vote any way that you want. But it really doesn't matter if what you're voting for is your typical old capitalist, uh, you know, imperialist system. And, and that leads me to wonder, what is it? In countries like the U.S. and in Sweden and and in other countries that either want to be or are already vassal states of the United States and its allies, that's different in regard to voting compared to countries in the global south where we've seen the people's movements. Rise up and literally seize political control, seize control of the mechanisms of political power, and use voting as a true force for change, like literally wresting the government away from uh, a right wing U.S. Uh, a proxy. Uh, uh, president. I'm thinking of Colombia right now. But there are also other examples where voting in other countries like Cuba and Venezuela, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, other other countries where there are stronger left movements, where voting is a different thing than it is in countries like the U.S. and what, what you're seeing now in Sweden. What do you think that is? Why do you think voting is something different mean something different in countries that are quite honestly captured by the em- empire or, and want to be captured by the empire and countries that are non aligned?
6: Yeah, I mean, well, I can get deep in the weeds, but I'll I'll, I'll wade a little bit into the weeds. <laughs> but basically, I think the first thing that we have to disabuse ourselves of is the idea that Sweden is a socialist nation. Mm. Uh, Sweden was on its way to being that. You know, my grandfather, for instance, paid a seventy-five percent tax rate, but. He wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, and if you look at how Sweden progressed into the 1900s, Sweden was the first country, for instance, uh, to have a, uh, a pension, to institute a pension uh, at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the 1900s. Sweden was incredibly progressive when it came to workers' rights and, in particular, women's rights. Uh, and Of course, there's a dark side to this, too, with Sweden having its own history of colonialism vis-a-vis the Sami up north, uh, the indigenous of the far north. Um, And this is something that is still not really discussed. And in terms of the movements of the 1900s, it was also not really discussed. And you had a lot of uh, Sami activists that fought for their own autonomy. And in terms of state socialism, as as far as you can get in a colonialist nation state, uh, there was a lot of push for workers' rights and for women's rights and things like this. Uh, and Towards the 80s, you know, when the Margaret Thatchers and the Reagans started to take power and deindustrialization took hold, basically governments were faced with a choice. You can either go the route of Thatcher and Reagan and, and, and go, you know, Reaganomics and make capital far more important than people's lived experiences, or you can go towards the people and you can say that people are more important than profit Sweden went towards the capitalist route, and Sweden decided, uh, under a, a series of uh, prime ministers, and I will say they're social democrats, uh, that you know the the most important thing is capital. And we see the results of that. You know, Sweden actually has more billionaires per capita than than the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, Sweden uh, has done away with inheritance tax and and wealth tax. Uh, Before the last crash in 2008, Sweden's stock market was valued at 181% of GDP. Today, it's 128%, but that's still more than either the U.S. or the U.K., Private equity is uh, is 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 the supreme leader in Sweden. And we see that Sweden, I, I think, is one of the only countries, if not the only country, who publicly or, or, or trades its public schools, trades schools on its stock market. And so the dumbing wow. down of Swedish children has literally come at a profit for private and foreign investors. I mean, this is the state of affairs in Sweden. So I think the first thing to do is disabuse ourselves of the idea that Sweden is socialist, particularly when we compare it to a lot of nations that we've seen in the past in Africa and South America and Latin America that have actually held on to leftist ideals and pushed for those governments Um You know, we just passed September 11th, which in if you're in Chile is uh, uh, a completely different, uh, different day Mm -hmm. than uh, than than we would consider it in the United States. And so I think that uh, that is that is the first important, uh, important piece there. But I think also it's that, uh, you know, the U.S. and Sweden have a lot of similarities when it comes to how politicians have have treated their post. And that it's become a bit of a revolving door. You know, Swedish, Swedish politicians make bank from a variety of private investments and uh, private equity, just like I mentioned with Ulf uh, selling off uh, state-owned state assets to private companies who then lease them back, uh, not least of all preschools and senior housing. Uh, I mean, these are the worst type of capitalist vampires and the the fact is that sweden has not done a good job of weeding them out so now they are at the top and people in sweden are not having it they don't want to vote for these kind of people but they're also pressed into fear by the, the the rhetoric of you know hating the immigrant and hating the other. And so that's why you see the right-wing swing. It's the same thing that we've seen in the US. Neoliberalism has left these people with nothing, and yet the rhetoric has not changed. The Democrats don't speak to people's needs. It's the same thing with the social Democrats here in Sweden. They're not speaking to people's needs. When they're in power, they don't do anything to help people. So you see the right-wing swing. And a lot of this is also because the other leftist parties... Uh, are, are are not speaking to people's needs in a an important and powerful way. I mean, for instance, the Green Party talks a lot about the environment and climate change. And yes, that is incredibly important. But what does that have to do with the fact that gun violence in Sweden has skyrocketed? What does that have to do with the fact that pensioners are dying in poverty, uh, some of them freezing to death during the winter because they can't afford energy? I mean, what I agree that climate change is important, but you also have to speak to people's daily needs. And that is something that the leftist parties in Sweden have not done a very good job of. And the right wing parties have done an amazing job. And unfortunately, the leader of the fascist party is a phenomenal public speaker. I don't know why that's a thing, why fascists tend to also be great public speakers, Mm, but a lot of them are. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) A lot of them are. And this is a similar problem that we see here. And so I think with all of that combined, uh, you know, neoliberalism, leaving people with 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 no faith in that in in those in those parties. uh, And unfortunately, that also rubbing off on the other members of the leftist coalition and then these charismatic leaders, saying just what you know what Hitler said right like I have the answer to your problem it's these people right I mean that's so tempting right it is so tempting and it's a lot easier to swallow than this long list of issues that are systemic and have to do with global capitalism Uh, and so I think all taken together that's why voting in 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 Sweden looks the way that it does
0: comparatively and you know this this raises the issue of folks like U.S. progressives like AOC and even St. Bernard Sanders, who, you know, is always bringing up Sweden as the model of the social democracy. Because, you know, we can't we can have socialism in the United States, but we can walk, you know, we can we can move toward the social democracy that Sweden has. I mean, Eleanor, are these people unintelligent do they not know what has gone on in sweden that sweden is not even a social democracy anymore or are or, or are they really doing their part to continue to sell people the bill of goods to vote for the democratic party because they're not offering anything outside of the two party system and and they they're just trying to put a bow on something uh distasteful that they're trying to pass off in a box Voters.
6: I think it's a bit of both. I think it's also a a, a healthy helping of American exceptionalism and yeah. not really doing a lot of homework about other countries. <laughs> and so they hear that Sweden has free healthcare, which we still do to a point. And they hear that uh, that that you know it's um we've got free schooling and and daycare and things like that. And they're like, oh, well, then that's 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 the kind of world we want to build. And I, I think it's, it's, it's also that Sweden has really good PR, you know, Mm. Sweden paints itself as this adorable little place with little red cottages and everyone's nice. And, uh, it's just this, this, this wonderful place where they throw healthcare at you as soon as you get off the plane. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it's just not true. And I think that the American exceptionalism perspective creates this this flat and flimsy uh, picture of other nations outside the U.S. And I think that uh, politicians such as Bernie Sanders and AOC, I mean, AOC, I have I've even less time for than than Bernie, but uh, (laughs) uh, I don't particularly like either one of them. Um, But I think that it's easy to look at a place like Sweden and say, oh, that must be better. And in some cases, it is yes. If I if I needed life-saving help right now, I would not have to pay for it. <laughs> but but if that's, I think that's also that also speaks to how bad things are in the U.S. That it's like we are like it, it, it something is in like Sweden that even in so many ways is such is going through so many terrible shifts and changes is still doing better than the U.S. and is still has something to offer that the U.S. doesn't says more about the status quo in the US, I think.
0: And, you know, do what do you make of the fact that whenever US politicians who call themselves leftists, but they're really not, they're really just liberals who are trying to, you know, gain some points ahead of election, they always bring up Sweden, as an example. Um, But they never bring up countries that we talked about before, Eleanor, that actually have held on to, as you said, absolutely real, true leftist principles in spite of crushing U.S. imperialism, countries like Cuba, countries like Venezuela. Uh, You know what? What do you make of that? What, What do you attribute that to? Oh,
6: I, well, I mean, I, I think, uh, again, it, it really just, it, it goes back to imperialism and colonialism. And I think, you know, I, I remember when, when folks were holding space at the Venezuelan embassy in DC and I was there, the Swedish embassy is right down the street mm. in, in Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. And I went down there because the, the, the EU parliament, there were, the, you, there were votes uh, for the EU parliament. So I went there cause you can vote at the embassy. And I walked in and I said, do you know what's happening right up the street? And I said, let's say that the leader of the fascist party just walked in one day and was like, I'm prime minister. Everyone can just if you don't like it, you can just, you know. Uh, and everyone looked at me like I was an alien, like I just walked in like, you know, naked or something wearing a, you know, like a cape. It was just like I, they looked at me horrified and then they were just like, so do you want to vote? Wow. The, the the care for things that are going on in the nations that you, as you so well put it, like are actually pushing for socialism or actually pushing for justice and a future built on uh, on tenets of freedom and liberation. There's absolutely no interest in that. There is interest in upholding imperialism because that is what these nation state. I mean, Sweden is part of this imperialist project. Uh, Yes, Sweden didn't have, uh, you know, a colony in Africa, but it supported the countries who did. Let's Mm. not be let's not uh, lie about that. Uh, Sweden has this history of wanting to be neutral, but it has not been neutral. How can a weapons manufacturer be neutral? And so I think it really just speaks to the fact that if you were to bring up these nations and say, why don't we be more like Cuba? You'd have to also talk about the terrorism that has been meted out on these countries by not only U.S. imperialism, but by those who support U.S. imperialism, which is Sweden, which is the EU in general. And that is a conversation that politicians neither in the U.S. nor in Sweden are willing to wade into. Uh, And I assume they're probably not equipped to wade into that conversation either. So I think that uh, it's, 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 uh, it's wanting to uphold the status quo. Uh, And that's also why I have very little faith in in, in voting here in Sweden as well, because I think that uh, the people who would be in power in a leftist, so-called leftist coalition, are people that are not that different in terms of combating imperialism and colonialism. That's not to say that I think the fascists should take power, but it's to say that the change that actually needs to happen in Sweden and in the U.S., is change that cannot happen by checking a box on voting day. It is change that has to happen on a much more grassroots and organizing level. Uh, and, uh, And if it doesn't, then we can see both in the U.S. and now in Sweden where our path will take us.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's not as if we don't have ample examples of what that looks like how to do that, how to organize on that grassroots mass movement level that we need. We do have examples. We just really don't like looking at those examples. We don't like talking about, excuse me, and looking at how, uh, the organizing was done on the grassroots level in Bolivia. We don't we don't like looking at how the grassroots roots organizing was done and how long the organizing was done and how much of a public struggle against the right wing fascist forces in Colombia. What that actually took, how long people stayed in the streets. We don't like to talk about uh, the years of uh, not just demonstrations, but the organizing that went on, the political education, the constant political education that went on outside of the demonstrations, leading up to the demonstrations in uh, other countries where the left actually is left, where there actually is a socialist government, where the people actually maintain and hold and wield power. So it is very difficult for us in this country, where the people have never, ever, it, since the inception of this country, in the origin documents that were uh, crafted, the people were never intended to be given political power. So it's very hard for us to believe that we can seize power and we can do what those folks in Colombia and Bolivia and other countries in Vietnam have done. But it can be done. And we know that it can be done because those people actually did it. It was not easy. It took struggle. And that's, I think, the key. Too many of us are very, very afraid of struggle, so we don't even want to organize. But if we do not struggle, we do not win. And that is just the bottom line. But we're out of time for this show. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining. Until next time. Peace.
1: By any means necessary.